or watching at another time, we are here to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ together. We believe He is uh, the King and He is worthy of our praise. Um, those of us here in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, know we're dealing with uh, a little bit of a weather warning, right? We've been given a little heads up that potentially a few days from now, a tropical storm or a hurricane may be uh, coming through, and a warning allows you to make the necessary precautions and preparations ahead of time. And warnings are helpful if they come in time. There's nothing less helpful than a warning given after the fact. And so I want us to begin together in Mark chapter 9. We're going to use the book of the Bible that we've been studying through. And uh, in this season that we're in, I'm so helpful that God in his uh, grace towards us has had us in the gospel of Mark so that week after week when we come together to study God's word, we see the Lord Jesus Christ displayed uh, for what he is about and what he's doing and who he is, is what we need. And so Mark 9 warns us about what life becomes when we do not abide in Christ. So let me give you one of the most helpful warnings you can ever be given. Life apart from Jesus will never work. I want you to hear this warning in time and ahead of time. Life apart from Jesus will never work. So Mark chapter 8 and 9, this is our call to worship. Uh, I'm going to preach right now, but just some reminders as we get ready to enter the presence of the Lord together. Mark 8 and 9 helps us see what life becomes when we live it apart from Jesus. So look at Mark 8 verse 36, for example. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? So those are the stakes here when we talk about life apart from Jesus. You're going to forfeit your life. And then what we see unfolding in Mark 8 and 9, just listen to this description. I want to describe to you or warn you about what, what happens in life when you seek to live apart from Jesus. You're going to seek to acquire power so that other people will serve you. It's what life will become. You might do it like the Pharisees, believing things would be better if we could all just go back to the way things used to be. Or you may do it along the lines of the Sadducees who wanted to take some of the teachings of the Old Testament and mix them with the secular ideas of the day, believing that that would ultimately lead to progress. Or you might align with the Zealots who wanted to tear the whole system down using violence and intimidation as a means to obtain power. Or you might be like the Essenes who believed the whole society was corrupt and they were going to be done with everybody and everything. They're going to completely withdraw. They believe that's how life would be lived. And you will, I promise you, you will choose one of those paths if you live your life apart from Jesus. And then Mark 9 provides for us what it looks like when everybody does that. Look in Mark 9 verse 14. They came to the disciples they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. Mark 9, 34. They kept silent. Jesus had asked them, what were you talking about as we had to walk along the way? They kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. This is what life becomes when we seek to live life apart from Jesus. 
everyone seeking to acquire power in the way they think power should be acquired, and left to ourselves, left to ourselves, this is what happens to us, arguing with everyone around us, and then arguing with one another. That's what happens to the disciples when they seek to live their life apart from Jesus. So left to ourselves, we will get the purpose of life wrong every time, and then two things result. I want you to see them straight from Mark 9. Result number one, when we seek to live apart from Jesus, arguing with everyone around us and then even arguing among ourselves, two things happen. One, the spiritual forces of darkness will thrive. Look at verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, foams, grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Spiritual forces of darkness are thriving. I'm going to read from Mark chapter 9, uh, two verses to get us going in our study of God's Word tonight. Mark 9, we'll begin in verse 28. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And they went on from there. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that we don't have to live life apart from him, but we can abide in Christ and therefore really be alive, really have freedom, really live for what you've created us for, to know and enjoy and proclaim the living God. So give us grace now as we study your word. I ask that uh, what we study would be in line with your intent in inspiring this chapter and these words to be written. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, of course, you may be seated, and uh, we're going to study tonight a sermon, and I'm entitled, How to Move On After You've Failed. How to move on after you've failed. Now, to state something obvious on the front end, we're all going to fail. You're going to fail. I'm going to fail. Sometimes our failing is going to be significant, going to have significant effects on those we love, those we know. We're going to be cowardly when we should have been courageous. We're going to be argumentative when we should have been compassionate. We're going to try to build our own kingdom when we should have been listening to Jesus about what the kingdom really is. All the things that the the disciples do in Mark chapter 9, we are prone to doing. And so what the next verses will teach us is how to move on after you have failed. The disciples find themselves in a really sensitive moment. They come to Jesus privately. After this dramatic uh, event, after the stress of the day, the arguments, uh, the uh, Stress of a demon attacking a little boy, foaming at the mouth. Jesus heals him, uh, restores him to his dad, as we saw last week. And when they finally get back to the house, things have kind of quieted down. The disciples come up to him. Why could we not cast it out? What are they saying? Why did we fail? Why could we not do what you commissioned us to do? And Jesus responds to them in the next verse and in the next scene. And so that's what I want us to see together. But just so we can appreciate the moment the disciples find themselves in, just to briefly restate, 
what the disciples have done right before this moment. Remember, after the transfiguration, we've got Peter, James, and John coming down the mountain uh, after Christ has been transfigured in his glory and in his power, and they're really excited. Remember their question, doesn't Elijah come back before the kingdom comes? And their expectation is, we just saw Jesus in all his glory. We're ready to get the chariots and the armor, and we're ready to march and defeat Rome. They can foresee chariots and armies and power because they believe Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and establish a throne that can never be shaken. And Jesus is going to Jerusalem, right? And he is going to establish a throne that can never be shaken. But instead of marching in on a chariot, he's going to actually ride in on a donkey, right? He's going to be deserted. And he's going to demonstrate real power on the cross. And then in the next scene that we've referred to multiple times already, the disciples are caught up in arguing with the scribes, unable to meet the pressing needs of those around them, prayerless and without compassion. And then again, friends, we tend to be like them, don't we? Just take a moment to pause and just appreciate that for all the time that has gone by, we tend to be just like them. Human nature is the very same, isn't it? We also dream of acquiring power more than sacrificing ourselves for the good of others. We also argue and demonize our enemies while the actual demons exploit those we're called to serve, especially children, as we saw last week. And we too tend to be so very, very prayerless. So the disciples have made some foolish decisions. Sometimes wise people make foolish decisions, don't they? And Erwin Lutzer says, the sum of our lives equals the sum of our decisions. And some of the most important decisions you'll ever make is what you decide to do after you've failed. So two important things to see here on the front end is you have to cling to God in the midst of your missteps. One of the most foolish things you can ever do is after you fail, to not run to God. But this is what we're prone to do. And then you have to trust this. God is bigger than the mistakes you make. Sometimes our failures, they are significant. We are all going to have moments where we completely blow it. Again, cowardice instead of courage when it really counts. Faithless when faith is required. Prayerlessness when we should be praying. But no matter how significant the failure, God is greater. And on a Monday morning, which I, what I typically do is to come into the office and get alone with the Word and see what uh, I've already read a little bit ahead most of the time, but to see what the next scene. And I just loved how the next scene begins in verse 30. They went on from there. So what do you do after you failed? Let's start here. This is point number one. We can move on. That's already good news, right? Your failures aren't final. Sometimes when you fail, you get stuck in the failure. But what we'll see here is we can move on confident that Jesus will not discard us when we failed, I'm so thankful that when we get to Mark 9, they don't get back to the house and they ask him in private, Jesus, why could we not drive the demon out? And Jesus says, I have had it with y'all. Can y'all just go back to where you came from and I'm going to see if I can find 12 different disciples and invest in them. That's not what happens. Jesus sticks with them. 
Mark 9 does not say in verse 30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee and Jesus told them to go on back to Capernaum while he went looking for newer and better disciples. This is a deeply sensitive moment for the disciples. They're in what I call an aha moment. Aha moments are important. And the aha stands for whenever someone's angry, whenever someone's hurt, or whenever someone's ashamed. It's an aha moment. Most people don't respond well to aha moments. They're angry, they're hurt, and they're a little bit ashamed, aren't they? Or maybe a little of all. People can come to an aha moment after making a really foolish financial decision or moral failure or responding inappropriately to a situation. And how does Jesus respond here in their aha moment? Well, he stays with them. He doesn't discard them. He doesn't say, I'll never get there. (laughs) He doesn't say this is one time too many. He doesn't say you should have figured this out by now. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 42. And I want you to see this about Jesus. It's one of my favorite prophecies of him in the Old Testament. And it tells us something important about how he is, how his character is. And in particular, what you can expect from him in truth when you have a fragile moment of failure. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will will not grow faint. Or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. It's all glorious, but pay attention to the statement promising, I believe, of Jesus that he will not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning wick. You know what a bruised reed is, it don't you? Like a little blade of grass that's bent and it's about to break. It wouldn't take much. This little flicker of the finger or a strong wind and the bruised reed would break. Or a little flame that is just about to go out. You wouldn't hardly have to breathe on it and the flame would go out. And it's a picture of what we're like when we failed. And what the disciples are like in Mark 9. Why couldn't we drive it out? And how does Jesus respond? What's it say? He's, he really is gentle and lowly of heart. He doesn't break the bruised reed. He protects the bruised reed. And it's important for you and me to see in the aha moment both what Jesus does and then how we too can be like him in helping others who are find themselves in this situation. It's one of the most helpful parenting passages I know of. Because guess what, parents? Your children are going to make really big mistakes. They are. Do you know this? Your uh, Your parents, well, your parents might blow it too, but parents, your children, your children and your grandchildren are going to make mistakes. They're going to be so very confident. They know what they're talking about. And no matter how much you try to reason with them, they're not going to listen. 
How will you respond, not if that happens, but when that happens? Well, let's take a note from Jesus. They went on from there. Not a main point, but I also want you to notice that it's they went on. It's another appeal to us as a church family. It's not just you and Jesus, it's us. We are in this together. Part of us moving on from failure is doing so together. So they went on from there and passed through Galilee. And in this really sensitive moment, what is it that Jesus chooses to talk about? He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed after three days, he will rise. Let's learn from Jesus. In their moment of failure, what does he do? He talks to them about the cross. I want you to see this about Jesus because you don't know many people like this. Do you know what most people would talk about? The failure, how you blew it. And they'd rehearse the details. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you say that? Why weren't you more prayerful? Why is Jesus going to the cross? Because truth be told, all we bring is failure. It's all we're capable of. You see, God is not, friends, God is not up in heaven waiting on you to get it right and figured out. And notice what it says about them. Even after Jesus talks to them about the cross, verse 32, they didn't understand. They did not understand the saying. And they're afraid to ask him. Well, in their moment of failure, Jesus talks to them about the death, burial, and resurrection that will occur through his work of atonement. Jesus does not discard you when you fail. Everybody listening. Jesus does not discard you when you fail. We live, we live in a discarding, shaming culture. But Jesus isn't like that. He doesn't discard you when you fail, but neither does he affirm in such a way that we continue to make the same foolish decisions over and over again. He will not destroy the bruised reed, But neither will he allow that reed to keep doing things that lead to the bruising. I hope that makes sense. He's not going to discard you when you fail, but he's not going to leave you to yourself to just keep failing again and again and again. He loves you too much for that. Now, he does not arm them at this moment with better arguments for next time when when they debate the scribes. He does not get them to begin making weapons to use against the Romans. He talks to them about the cross and the resurrection. See, Jesus did not discard Adam and Eve when they rebelled. He did not discard Abraham when he lied. He did not discard Lot when he drifted into worldliness. Jesus did not discard Jacob when he deceived his own family. He did not discard Moses when he couldn't control his temper. He did not discard Naomi when she questioned the goodness of God. He did not discard David when he committed adultery. He did not discard Elijah when he was discouraged. He did not discard Hannah when she was distraught, Peter when he denied him, or John Mark when he dropped out. He stayed with them. He stays with them. He stays with you. Not so, not so Abraham could go on lying or David could go on adulterizing or that Hannah could continue distraught. No, he stayed with them in order that he could free them of those things. And your Savior is so incredible that he goes to the cross to pay for those very things. He goes to the cross to pay for Abraham's lying and David's adultery and <laughs> every, every sin that those who trust him have committed. 
Friends, hell will not be filled with those God has discarded, but rather those that have discarded God. In their moment of failure, Jesus points them to the cross. And the cross is necessary because we have failed. But the cross would not have happened had he not loved us as he does. But they did not understand. Verse 32. Now the first thing I want you to see, we can move on. How do you you move on after you fail? Well, first, we move on confident that Jesus will not discard us when we failed. But now using verse 32, we can move on knowing Jesus will patiently shepherd us even when we do not understand. Now, he's talking to them again about the cross. And as we saw last week, if you go to Mark 8, 9, and 10, you see that Jesus is again and again teaching them that he's going to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised again now we see we can know we can move on rather knowing jesus will patiently shepherd us even when we do not understand the older i get the more thankful i am for the patience of jesus when jesus does return to teaching them about the cross they don't understand the reason they don't understand is because it's a little bit like this as a baseball fan of the Boston Red Sox, it would be a little bit like someone saying this to me. The Red Sox will go to the World Series, they'll be swept in four games, and then they'll be the World Series champions. You say, run that by me one more time. You just said the Red Sox are going to go to the World Series, they're going to be swept in four games, and then they're going to be the World Series champions. That doesn't make any sense. How can they be the champions if they just got swept? But that's exactly what Jesus is saying. And they don't understand it. See, see, they've got it in their mind. Transfigure Jesus, go into Jerusalem. Powerful kingdom is coming. He's going to defeat all the enemies. And now he's talking about he's going to suffer. And the reasons they don't understand is because their categories of winning and losing are misinformed. A dying Messiah, a crucified Christ. The glorious son of man of Daniel 7 is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And this did not fit, listen to me, this did not fit into their preconceived thinking of how the kingdom of God would come. And they're not the only ones who have preconceived notions of what God should do. But he's a patient shepherd. If you're going to shepherd sheep, you have to have patience because of the nature of sheep. You know sheep? I really don't know a lot about sheep. I've not, you might find this hard to believe. I've not spent a lot of time in my life around sheep, but I have read about them. And what I've read is that sheep are about blind. Sheep are about deaf. And sheep really aren't all that smart. Sheep will nibble on grass and walk right off a cliff. Just about any animal on earth can win a fight with a sheep. A few weeks ago, uh, when our family was in the mountains, we went horseback riding and uh, we had rather docile horses that are just used to riding I mean they basically that's what they said they're basically sleepwalking I mean they walk this trail constantly but after we had uh I was going to say gotten off the saddle is that way I mean this is how ignorant I am about horseback riding after we had that's the word I'm looking for thank you dismounted that's what a gymnast does I didn't do it like a gymnast but I got off the horse that was just put it that way off the horse and we walked around and then got back on the horse and they were lining us up and Julie's horse was behind mine 
and kind of inched up. And we had been told that the horse Julie was on, what was his name? Buster. Buster Bites. They should have called him Biter. So he came up, and just for a moment, my horse went from docile to it reared up. Like it got on its hind legs, and I felt for a moment just how powerful that animal was. And if he'd taken off, no matter how hard I would have pulled on the reins, I don't believe I would have been able to subdue him. Friends, sheep aren't like that. Sheep aren't like that. They're weak, they're helpless, they're harmless. Have you ever in your life spread a sign that said, beware of the sheep? Now, it's an insult. It's an insult. If somebody were to call you a sheep, what are they calling you? Sometimes you hear that in our culture. Oh, they're all just sheep. It means you're a thoughtless follower. Look at all the sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. You know, theologically, what's true of all of us is everybody has a shepherd. For some people, money's the shepherd. Or health is the shepherd. Or any number of things can be the shepherd. But there's only one who can say, I shall not want. And that's those that have the Lord as the shepherd. If the Lord's not your shepherd, the testimony is not, I shall not want. The the testimony is, I'm always in want. They didn't understand. They were afraid to ask him. But Jesus remains patient with them. Y'all aren't going to believe. Y'all aren't going to believe what happens next. In the midst of Jesus demonstrating so much grace and patience towards them. Wouldn't you you think in this moment where we're going to read the next description of the disciples, they're finally getting it. Because he's been so patient and so kind and so gracious. But let's see what happens next. Verse 33. They came to Capernaum. That's hometown for a lot of them. Right? Peter and Andrew and James and John. Kind of come back home. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Can you believe it? Can you believe it? They're arguing about which of them is the greatest. I grew up in a a generation of the VHS tape. And the VHS tape that I had growing up that I think I watched more than any other was called NBA Jams. That was the VHS tape that I watched. I bet I watched it 200 times, and that's a conservative estimate. And what the NBA Jams cassette tape was, was a sequence of music videos highlighting different NBA players. And so Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Charles Barkley and Akeem Olajuwon, one at a time you'd have a music video and they'd choose a song and for Larry Bird it was winning it all by the outfield. I still love that song and even now when I'm laboring through a three mile run, I'll cue that up on Spotify, I'm going to listen to that song and I think back to that video and there's Larry Bird, it was his fall away jump shots and the next video would be Akeem Olajuwon with his unbelievable footwork and then Magic Johnson's video with all his no look passes and Michael Jordan with his unbelievable dunks now let me ask you this if we were to try and splice together from the gospel of mark a highlight package of the disciples what would we see here's what we'd see mark chapter 4 you want to look at the highlights with me let's put a little music video together here mark chapter 4 verse 40 i'm sorry Uh, mark chapter 4 verse number 10. Highlight number one. When he was alone, those around him 
with the twelve asked him about the parables. They don't know what he's talking about. Let's go to the next highlight. Mark 4, verse 40. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? This is after they've been screaming their heads off in the midst of the storm, right? How about Mark chapter 6, verse 35? Some highlight package, isn't it? When it was late, his disciples came to him and said, this is the feeding of the 5,000, this is their plan. It's a desolate place. The hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. Get them out of here. We want them gone. Mark chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, said, Get behind me, Satan. Mark 9, verse 11. They asked, Why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? What's the implication? We're about to march on Jerusalem and overcome it, right? 9, 14. There they are arguing with the scribes again. And then bringing us up to the present moment, they're arguing which one of them was the greatest. Just like us, aren't they? Every time I read this uh, passage, I, I have to ask myself, how could that argument have possibly sounded? I mean, what was the criteria they were basing their argument on? Did John say, hey, I didn't scream as loudly in fear as the rest of you did in the storm? Did Peter say, hey, I was standing closer to Jairus' daughter than you were when Jesus raised her from the dead? Does Andrew pipe up, hey, I handed out more bread at the feeding of the 5,000 than you did? I mean, what is the criteria? The greatest is among them. He's just not one of them. And then Jesus. I always want to kind of read into the text that he's just fed up and exasperated with them I mean wouldn't you by now but look at his patience it's point number three as we move on Jesus transforms and changes us look at his patience he sat down and called the twelve so he called him he's not discarded the twelve he says I'll come here if anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, I'm going to venture to guess, those of you in the room and most of you streaming, you've heard this statement before. It's frequently, it's frequently quoted. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in a situation in the old days, you know, when we'd line up for things and somebody just kind of offhanded would always say, oh, whoever's first shall be last. Whoever's last shall be first. I know you know this statement. I'm asking you if you really know what this means. This is what the greatest says about being the greatest. And you mark this down way deep in your heart. If anyone would be first, he must be the servant of all. And he took a child and put it in the midst of them. Now, the reason Jesus at this moment takes a child, because in that time and that place, and it still tends to be true, by the way, the children were looked upon as the most unimportant, most overlooked. So Jesus takes a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to him, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Because one thing you could do if you did rewind the tape and begin to read through the gospel of Mark, whether it was the Syrophoenician woman or the demon-possessed boy here in Mark 9, is that the disciples again and again are just overlooking children, right and left. 
unimportant. It's one of the ways the people of God can distinguish ourselves in this generation is to uh, know how valuable children really are. Now, if we can move as a church family from knowing that he says this to really understanding what he means when he says this, it'll transform everything. As we move on, Jesus transforms and changes us. So let's hold the two things together. He doesn't discard them, but neither is he committed, for them, committed to them staying as they are. Does it make sense? I'm going to stay with you. I'm, I'm unchanging. That's what Jesus is demonstrating here. But you're going to change. If you were to examine the last year, let's just use 2020. I know it's been some year, but if I ask you this, what change has Jesus brought about in your life this year? How is he transforming you? Well, if we understand what Jesus is saying, it transforms everything. It'll change what you're impressed with in life. It'll change what you aim for in life. And this has everything to do with what they don't understand, verse 32, and what they argue about, verse 34. Because if they understand the cross, that argument won't happen. And I want to apply that to us. If we understand the cross, this argument won't happen. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? You become a servant of the weakest and most overlooked and most unimportant, quote-unquote, of the world. They, the world. Who the world discards becomes your priority. So if we can take what we're seeing here in, in Mark 9, we're moving on, and as we move on, Jesus transforms us, and we move on from arguing with the influential and respected to receiving and welcoming the overlooked. Make sense? Say it again. We move on from arguing with the seemingly influential and respected to receiving the overlooked. This is how to move on from failure. Moving on does not mean staying the same. It means being transformed by the goodness, grace, and patience of Jesus. So we move on from a sinful understanding of greatness that leads us to diminish and discard others to a true understanding of greatness that leads us to selflessly serve others. That was my sermon in a sentence, by the way, so I'm going to repeat it one more time. We move on from a sinful understanding of greatness that leads us to diminish and discard others to a true understanding of greatness that leads us to selflessly serve others. Now, here's how you do that. You have confidence that Jesus himself will never discard you. You trust that Jesus will patiently shepherd you even when you don't understand. And you trust that he is a master craftsman. He knows what he's doing. He will transform and change you into a servant. How do you know? How do you know if God's at work in your life and power? Are you more and more longing to and actively living as a servant? That's how Jesus lived. He said, I come not to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Let's stand together and we're going to pray together. And then respond to uh, the scripture that we've studied together this evening. 
Just a few questions as we pray. First of all, I believe this is a helpful study for us tonight. If you have found yourself kind of stuck in a moment of failure and you don't know how to move on, you're disappointed or you're having an aha moment, you are angry or hurt or ashamed. Well, when that happened to the disciples, Jesus, Jesus shepherded them, shepherded them to the cross. And that's where you need to go as well so that you can understand how abundantly Christ has covered your failures and the measure of his love towards you. Second, maybe you're really wrestling with some things you simply don't understand about God or about the cross or any number of things. You say, I just don't understand. Just trust that Jesus will patiently shepherd you even when you don't understand. And then to respond to what we've studied in the most recent verses that we've read, that Jesus will transform and change you. We all have preconceived notions of what it would mean to be great. Here's what Jesus says it means to be great. That you are a servant of all. Father, I gave uh, you glory that Jesus does not discard us when we make mistakes. He doesn't um, abandon us. He stays with us. Thank you for your grace and patience towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, Father, I pray that our heart's desire is to be a servant, that you'd use the scripture and by the Holy Spirit bring us to mature faith that says my goal in life is to be a servant like Jesus is. It won't lead to a life of comfort or convenience. In fact, often I'll serve people and they won't even appreciate it, won't even understand it. And in that way, we'll be like our king. Now, Father, help us to really listen to what the scripture says. For faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So may it be so in Jesus' name.